This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of January 15th. It's impossible. 2024. Yeah, I had a moment of no, wait, what? That doesn't seem right. That can't be right. It is Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, we're at the end of the second chance competition and the beginning of the next champions wildcard group. Yeah, that's where we are. But before we get into the Jeopardy, Emily, how's it going? going okay i had a fun little ski trip last weekend so that was nice and church drama is weird as always nobody wants to hear all of the details but when you're the chair of the committee that among other things deals with allegations of misconduct by ministers sometimes you get really weird emails emails that, that have both like i greet you in the matchless name of jesus christ and i pray that you and your family are happy and healthy and that god is abundantly blessing you and i'm going to be talking to my lawyer <laughs> and like, <laughs> and it's like it's just a weird juxtaposition it's been a weird week yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. how about you i'm doing good i start a new job on monday and it is going to hopefully be everything that I ever wanted. No, it will hopefully be what I need. Like, yeah, it'll, it'll, it's fully remote. The pay is enough and it's a job, which is better than not. So <laughs> yeah, I start that Monday. I'm excited to get into it and get going and get my new routines established. So there's that. And then just the mandatory family illness of winter time mm, is yep. what we're dealing with now. So yeah. That is just how winter with little kids or life with little kids, but especially winter. Especially winter. Winter's when the heavy hitters come out, right? Like all year round, kids bring home, you know, like, oh, we've got a cough. We've got a cold. But wintertime rolls around and it's like, well, now you have to figure out, is it the flu or RSV or strep or or whatever else? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. chicken pox. Did you know that you can buy strep tests on Amazon? I, you know, I'd heard that. I don't I'm... know how well they work. I bought some, though, because I get a little paranoid about strep because I never had a positive strep test through my entire childhood. And then I got it three times in a year when I was in grad school. Mm. And it's made me a little jumpy about strep. And now I keep going to get strep tests. And the doctors are like, what are you doing here? I'm like, mm-hmm. getting strep tested, please. Just just swab. You get paid for this, right? But eventually I, I bought some strep tests, which I have sitting on my shelf so that maybe that can be something that I add into my strep anxiety routine. <laughs> cool. Yeah. You know, I can do like COVID tests are fine. I can stick a swab up my nose and that doesn't bother me. But you think you'd have a hard time with the strep swab? I am absolutely certain that I could not will myself to do that to myself. Okay. Yeah. Also... If I got a strep test, I don't know what I would do at home because I'd, I'd just be like, all right, I guess I'm going to call the doctor and bring this in. Like, because <laughs> I, I need them to prescribe me something. Right. Which means I probably need to go in anyway. Yeah. The One time that I, I was trying to get like antivirals 
for mm-hmm. COVID. And I brought a positive COVID test into CVS Minute Clinic. I was traveling. I brought in my positive test, like double bagged in a Ziploc bag. And like the nurse recoiled in horror and was like, why did you bring that here? It could have germs on it. Like, and you're like, I have I, germs on me. <laughs> you just had me sit in your waiting area for 25 minutes. Like... I am the thing you should be afraid of here. I tried to bring this so that we could expedite this whole thing. And so that I wouldn't be in here breathing in your air. But like, okay. I'm an incubator for this. I'm a breeding ground. This this, I am the biohazard. Right. The piece of plastic is not increasing in number. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So that that was wild. All right. Anyway. Anyway. I'm, I'm sorry you're dealing with the winter illness. Thanks. Me too. It is what it is. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get through. All right. We have Jeopardies to talk about. We will be stalwarts and we will persevere until we get new contestants back on the show. No, <laughs> again, months. no hate to the contestants who are on. Like if Jeopardy called and said, hey, you want to be on again? I'd be like, yes. Yes. Pretty much no questions asked. Uh huh. But I'm ready for a bit of normalcy in the Jeopardyverse. Anyway, on Monday. Like I said, we have the final game of the finals of the final week of the second chance competition for this season. So we have the returning finalists, Rotimi Kukoi, a sophomore health policy and management major at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill from Hoover, Alabama, who is coming in with zero from the previous game. Long Win, a retired engineer from Las Vegas, Nevada, who's coming in with 36,800. And Roy Camara, a grocery specialist from Crawfordville, Florida, who also is coming in with zero. Jeopardy round categories are Disney film titles visualized, world history, Portlandia, around the unusual house, say your fruits and veggies, and author's birthstones. I appreciate that in the author's birthstone, you are not expected to know any of the author's birth months. Yes. (laughs) They either gave you the month or the $1,000 level. If the author of Push had chosen her birthstone instead of this pseudonym, she would be Peridot. Yeah, you just need to know who the author of Push is. I am picturing now, because you said that you weren't expected to know the author's birth months, I'm picturing like the Jeopardy from Hell category author's birthstones where like you call 200 and it's like Charles Dickens. (laughs) Yeah, and you're like, what? (laughs) Well, I've got a 1 in 12 shot. Yep. If I can remember the birthstones. <laughs> That's true. I have a one in who knows how many shot if I'm just naming stones. Yeah. Roy made a pretty admirable sweep across the bottom row. Mm-hmm. Um, we hit all yeah. of those $1,000 levels by question 10. Mm-hmm. And Roy got five of them. One of them on a rebound. And then one went unanswered the thousand dollar level of portlandia this iconic city of books covers a full city block of portland's pearl district that's powell's i couldn't remember its name yeah i love powell's yeah great store everybody stood there perplexed for a minute at the thousand dollar level of disney film titles visualized and then roy got it conquer your emotions and tell us what's going on with the soccer ball and there was like a picture of a weird canvassy looking soccer ball (laughs) <laughs> I was like, I don't understand. And then Roy figured it out. It's Inside Out. Mm. Sequel to Inside Out is coming out in the summer. Upside Down? I think it's just Inside Out too. I'm very <sighs> excited for there to be a sequel, although they're introducing a bunch of new emotions. And I sort of have a problem with that because the five emotions from the original Inside Out are recognized as like the five basic 
human emotions. There's some conversation about whether there's really four or whether it's really five, but they're going to add in like anxiety and like a whole bunch of other things, which psychologists would be like, "Mm, that's not its own emotion. That's like... That's a subset of it or like a variation of this or a version of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked Inside Out, so my hopes are high. (laughs) But there's part of me that's like, "Mm, we're no longer consistent with the psychological research, I think. I agree with that. I, (laughs) but... I don't know. It's a sequel. You got to add more characters. Yeah, that's true. Daily Double number one is in that author's birthstones category we were just talking about. And Long finds it at the very first pick of the round. So everybody's at zero and he wagers a thousand. And he gets the clue. Would Alice Walker have called her 1982 novel something else if her February birthstone wasn't the color purple? This one. And he waited for a while kind of trying to come up with it and eventually seemed like he was saying something rather than nothing when he said it. Amethyst, but it is in mm-hmm. fact Amethyst. So he gets yeah. that one correct. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Roy's at 9,200. Long is at 4,200. Rotimi is at 200. And the double Jeopardy categories are African cities, religions of the world, desert flora and fauna, stay safe, pop music puri, and G whiz with G in quotation marks. The $2,000 level of religions of the world was a triple stumper, the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. Includes gathering four plants, three types of branch, and this lemon relative. And Long tried what is a quince, but that is, we know that as a citron, the Hebrew word is etrog. I remembered the name lulav, but that's that's a different, like there's the lulav and the etrog go together, but the lemon relative is the etrog. And I don't really remember what one does with those on Sukkot, hmm. but but they're part of the Sukkot kind of ceremonial tradition, ritual stuff. Interesting. Yeah. $400 level of African cities. Of course, we had to have the African Union has its headquarters in this Ethiopian capital. Juan got it. Mm, of Baba. course. Yep. Gotta, gotta mention Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Can't, can't have an African category without Ethiopia. It's true. And then, of course, the trivia chestnut at the $800 level, South Africa has three capitals. Mm. If you're going to be on Jeopardy or play trivia, you just need to be able to rattle these off. Pretoria and Bloemfontein, they gave you it, and the contestants needed to name the third one, which is Cape Town, mm-hmm. and Long got that one. The $800 level of stay safe myth, these are triggered by loud noise. Fact. It's more often the weight of skiers. Tip. Avoid slopes of more than 30 degrees. I don't know quite what's going on with the writing there, but it was fine. Yeah, the syntax is a little weird. Yeah. Roy got that. It's avalanches. I have other reasons for avoiding slopes of more than 30 degrees. It's because I'm not a very good skier. <laughs> yeah. 30 degrees is pretty That's steep. That's really steep. It's quite It's quite steep. Um, yeah. Especially when you are on things that are supposed to be slick. Yeah. Even if you weren't, that'd still be... Too that'd steep. That'd still be quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in Desert Flora and Fauna at the $1,600 level. Roy finds it. He's at 10400 Long's at 7800 Rotimi's at 200 And he bets it all. Gets the clue. Like the Australian marsupial it's named for, this rodent has a pouch. But for carrying seeds, not babies. Oh, and he guesses what is a kangaroo mouse. But it's a kangaroo rat. Ugh. Yeah. So Roy has, Roy has taken some hits on Daily Doubles. Mm-hmm. In his finals. Yeah. 
And Long Finds Daily Double number three at the $1,200 level of Religions of the World, pick number eight. He's at 9400 at this point. Roy is still at zero. Rotimi is at 200 And Long wagers 5000 And gets the clue. The Hajj or pilgrimage to Mecca is one of this architectural quintet of religious obligations. And he gets that correct. It is the five pillars of Islam. Yeah. So going into Final Jeopardy, Long has gotten himself into a significant lead, which given the significant lead he already had, he is in a easy lock for the tournament. Mm-hmm. He's at 19,600, whereas at 7,600, Rotimi's at 1,000. And the final Jeopardy category is on the stage. Clue is Paul Robeson said that even as this character kills, his honor is at stake. The honor of his whole culture is involved. Gotta, I guess you gotta know who Paul Robeson like famously played. Yeah. This is a triple stumper. Rotimi wrote, who is, I lost the buzzer race, but I just won $10,000. GG. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, that's incorrect. He wagered nothing. Roy wrote, who is B. Arthur? Wagered 350. Long wrote, who is Kunta Kinte? And he drew a pickleball racket and wagered $123. It's Othello. Mm-hmm. Famously portrayed Othello, which makes sense. So Long punches his ticket to the Champions Wildcard. So that brings us to Tuesday. We are now in the Champions Wildcard. This is quarterfinal game one of group one. And... Are we not doing card suits for these guys? That's, you know, that's what I was wondering. I was like, well, they've already done. So these ones the are going to have suits. to name after the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The, yeah, there are no other <laughs> fours. So, yeah, they're just calling it champions wild card. There's there's no. Can we not like sour, salty, sweet, bitter? Um, Salt, like... fat, acid, heat. Uh, <laughs> eeny meeny miny mo north south east west all right i guess we're calling them group one so this is group one quarterfinal game one and the contestants are sharon stone an early childhood intervention manager from round rock texas it must be funny living your life with the name sharon stone i think we talked about it when she when she was on yeah on, yeah, yeah. Katie Palumbo, a museum membership specialist from Amawak, New York, and Andy Terrell, a political science and international relations professor from San Diego, California. And the Jeopardy round categories are world geography, 1980s pro wrestling, a matter of law, hats in other words, our feathered friends, and major key alert with key in quotation marks. Yes. Ken really went for it with the 1980s pro wrestling. He, he did, which I think is the only way you can... I mean, Alex probably could have played it straight. Yeah. But I think anybody else, you kind of got to, you, you got to lean into the bit. Yeah. And I tell you what, man, pro wrestling is like a thing among trivia people. It is. And it never appealed to me in any way, shape or form. I have not really explored it. And I guess I'm not here to yuck anybody's yum. Yeah. Uh, but yes, yeah, I'm, I mean... not, I'm not very familiar with pro wrestling. Yeah, of things to like, it's a pretty harmless one, right? Like, yeah. It's just like any other entertainment that people choose to enjoy. It's like, fine. But mm-hmm. It just, I don't know. I had a weird feeling, you know, as I was getting into the trivia world after being on Jeopardy, and I realized how many people in the trivia community are like really into it. And I was like, huh, I guess because I, w- I never got into it, I always kind of just viewed it as this kind of niche thing. Yeah, same. Are hard hats called hard boils? Hard boiled? No, I don't think so. 
I think the answer they were looking for there was hard, as in hard hat. But that was confusing, and I think the wording threw people off. Oh, okay, gotcha. Boil an egg this way. Boil it hard. Yeah. To get a hard uh, hat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, yeah. yeah. That threw me off as well. Yeah. Uh, that's the $400 level of hats, in other words. And you tried soft boiled. Yeah, no, that's that was a that was weird wording, I thought. Ooh. Triple stumper at the $1,000 level of major key alert. It's the NATO phonetic alphabet code word that fits the category. If you started at, you know, the top. <laughs> yep. You weren't going to get to whiskey in time to ring in. Yeah. But I suppose if you just kind of went through ones you know or like common ones, then, then that would make more sense. But yeah, that was a tricky one. Yeah, I did not get that one figured out. A is alpha, right? A yes. Alpha, bravo, Charlie. Delta, Echo? I think that's correct. Yeah. I, I realized, realized the other day that I know about half of the phonetic alphabet. I need yeah. to review it. Foxtrot, Golf, Hotel, India... Than whatever Juliet. J is. Juliet, yes. Kilo, Lima. Lima. Mike. Mm. Oh, right. Yep. What's November. M? November. Right? Oscar. I think so. Yeah. Don't remember Pop- Q. Papa. He is Papa? He is Pop. I'm pretty sure. Interesting. What is Q? <laughs> My brain just fills stuff in. <laughs> Sometimes mm-hmm. when I can't, I'm like, Quagmire. I'm like, no. <laughs> Don't think it's that. <laughs> sure, it's not that. <laughs> All right. Daily double number one is in Our Feathered Friends at the $1,000 level. It's pick number 19. Katie finds it. She's at 1800 Andy's in the lead at 5000 Sharon's at 600 She wagers all of it, which she definitely should. Gets a clue. With a wingspan of about seven feet, the largest eagle in the Amazon is this species, named for foul bird-like women of Greek myth. And she gets correct with what is Harpy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Andy is at 6,400. Katie has moved up to 5,400. And Sharon's still at 600. Double Jeopardy categories are 20th century Americans. Half a category. Ballet. TV cliffhangers. Authors as book characters. And rhyme time. Mm-hmm. Authors as book characters is a fun category, I thought. Yeah. level in Dan Simmons' novel, Drood. Wilkie Collins meets the perplexing title character while traveling with this author in 1865. Katie got that. That's Charles Dickens. We've talked about Edwin Drood during my Dickens deep dive and at other times. But yeah, when authors come up as book characters, I always think that's kind of fun. So a category about it was, I don't know, satisfying somehow. Yeah, it scratches a weird, like, cleverness itch, I think, yes. of, like, yes, seeing, a, seeing a character or seeing an author in a literary work of being like, haha, I get it, you know? Yep. Yeah. The $1,600 level of TV cliffhangers. This Apple TV Plus show employed a time jump to 2003, and the reveal that a NASA director was now in Russia. Andy got it. That's for all mankind. Have you watched that? I haven't. Should I? I have kind of watched it over my wife's shoulder. So I missed some episodes and stuff like that. I enjoyed it until it got to like modern, like, like, like current kind of times. It, it's weird. Like when it was, you know, like historical fiction of the premises, the Soviets beat America to the moon and what, and all the fallout of that, right? They won the space race. What does that lead to? And like, that's all fine. But I don't know, the farther it got away from that moment, the less I was invested. I don't know why. Yeah. 
I don't know if it's something about the storytelling or if somebody listening has watched it and can put their finger on it as to my mm. the, like the issue with it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's well done. Mm-hmm. I just lost my engagement the farther along it went. Yeah. Fair. I felt bad for Katie at the $800 level of half a category. Ang was half of the conjoined twosome who in the 19th century were billed as this pair. And Katie said, who are Chang and Ang? Ken said, can you be more specific? Katie tried just Chang. It's the other one because mm-hmm. Ang was named. In some ways, it's like, can you be less specific? And he got the like, rebound. Um, they were billed as Siamese twins. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, right. Don't be more specific because you gave us the names. We right. want you to be not that. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen the movie about Bayard Rustin but I recognized his picture at the $2,000 level of 20th century Americans. He was a triple stumper brought back to his place in history by a 2023 movie. He was the main organizer of the March on Washington. It's a name to know for sure. Sure. All right. Daily double number two is in authors as book characters. It's at the $1,600 level at pick number four and Sharon finds it. She is at 1800 with Andy at 8,000 and Katie at 6,600. She wagers just 50, 1500. She could have gone up to 2000 here. And she gets the clue Vanessa and her sister by Priya Parmar refers to Vanessa Bell and this literary sibling. And she takes her time with it, but she does get it. It's Virginia Woolf. And Daily Devil number three is in the 20th century Americans category at the $1,200 level. Andy finds this one. He's at 9,600. Katie's at 5,400. Sharon is at 3,300. And he wagers 5,000. Mm-hmm. It's pretty early in the round, so it's a good wager. Gets the clue. Mario Savio led the 1964 free speech protests at this California university and protested Sonoma State fee hikes late in his life in 1996. Uh, and he gets it correct with what is University of California at Berkeley. So as the round progresses, Katie, who's been doing okay takes some big risks uh and ends up heading into the red late in the round so at the end of the double jeopardy round katie is at negative 1000 so she won't be participating in final jeopardy andy's at 21,800. that's a lock because sharon's at 6100 and the final jeopardy category is new nations with the clue in september 2023 the u.s recognized two new nations in free association with new zealand niuye and this archipelago sharon put down what is i hope he bet it all it is correct but cannot be awarded points yeah (laughs) yeah and she wagered six thousand all but a hundred and andy got it correct with what are the cook islands and he did not bet at all he bet 1800 i think he was thinking if i miss i'll get a nice even twenty thousand. and either way he is heading to the semifinals so his total here is twenty three thousand six hundred. yep so we get into wednesday when we have the contestants patty palmer a retired teacher and bookseller from tulsa oklahoma javeria zahir a psychiatrist from whitby ontario canada who we just saw in a second chance mm-hmm. and devin loman an architectural designer and master student from peachtree city georgia jeopardy round categories are the fist and the furious movies threw me off sorry <laughs> around the globe born on january 17th u.s stamps politics as unusual and inconvenient words, words made from the letters of inconvenient. I was intrigued by the $200 level of U.S. stamps showing a wreath, a ribbon, and two candles. The first USPS stamp celebrating this 
was controversial in 1962 for mixing church and state. Juveria got that. That's Christmas. And I guess it is intriguing to me because there is this framing of like the quote unquote war on Christmas, which I don't think is a real thing. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, as, as an entirely new thing. And, you know, for that to have been controversial runs counter to certain narratives for it, for there to have been controversy about it in 1962. So that was, that was interesting to me. I thought about this movie in so long and it took me a minute to get its name. I didn't get it in time, but the $800 level of the fist and the furious movies just after showing a fake ID that says Mick Lovin <laughs> gets hmm. sucker punched in a liquor store in this 2007 comedy. That of course is super bad. Groundbreaking comedy right there. Yeah. It was very... I haven't watched it since, I think, 2007. I'm sure it did not age well. Oh, I'm sure. Especially since, like, at the time, it was already pretty offensive, like, in general. That yeah. That was kind of part of the humor. Uh -huh. But I, I imagine it it pretty well sums up, you know, the, the attitude of comedy at that time. Yeah. Yeah, probably. 2007. Wow. Putting the name McLovin on a fake ID is still... It'll it will be classic it, it, now. It's part of the part of the, the the culture at this point. Yeah. Daily double number one is pick number seven at the eight hundred dollar level of US stamps. Juveria finds it. She's at sixteen hundred with Devin at eighteen hundred and Patty at eight hundred. And she makes it a true daily double, which is absolutely the right move here. And she gets the clue a nineteen eighty nine stamp drew criticism from paleontologists for labeling a dinosaur not a patasaurus, but this. And she knows it is Brontosaurus. Brontosaurus, yeah. Brontosaurus is back, by the way. True. Yeah. Yes, Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus are both real valid species. Uh, there was some confusion, and it's not really fair to get mad at the scientists when they change classifications based on the best evidence that they have. But That's the whole point of science. That's how science works. But it does feel like sort of the best outcome for everyone that Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus are both real species that did seem to have existed as far as the best current evidence indicates. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Juveria is in the lead with 5,600, Devon's at 1,600, Patty's at 3,800. And the double Jeopardy categories are not to be confused. Alliterative terms, find the fish. There is a fish hidden in the text of his clue. <laughs> if food be the love of music... Frailty, thy name is man, and summer of our discontent. These category titles are lengthy. They are, which gets me again when contestants read out the whole category title. I mean, I know you're like, we're trained to say the category title, not say same category or whatever. Yeah, but whatever. say food or music, not if food be the love of music. Yeah. Frailty, whatever. Yeah. Discontent. That's enough. Enough yep. to get there. Mm -hmm. Patty does not look like somebody who's going to know the ones that she got in If Food Be the Love of Music, but you shouldn't judge a book by its cover because she gets the $2,000 level. Kendrick Lamar quoted a folk saying when he sang The Blacker the Berry, then this result. Patty knew that was the sweeter the juice. Sweeter the juice. Yeah, she, yeah, also, yep, she also got the $400 level. Rihanna sang of this title treat, Can't Wait to Blow My Candles Out. That's birthday cake. I mean, I will say you... You could get those without knowing the music. Yeah. But it, it, it cast a just juxtaposition. That was fun. Mm -hmm. Yes. Have you encountered Grandpa Joe slander online? I mean, yeah. Okay. 
it makes sense. It does, yeah. $1,200 level of frailty. Thy name is man lying about in bed all day. This 96-year-old was delicate and weak, but spry enough to glom on to a Wonka tour. And Patty got that one as well. That's Grandpa Joe from yeah. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And like, oh. you know, fair enough, right? He'd been in bed for what, like 10 plus years as Mrs. Bucket tried to sustain all of the grandparents with cabbage soup and then all of a sudden he's dancing around the house like okay yeah you know well, I'll, t- I'll take you to the chocolate factory and i bet mrs bucket is like are you kidding me i get it one day off <laughs> it could be one day off for me uh-huh uh-huh yeah yeah and also you freaking freeloader mm-hmm. also violet beauregard should have won that's my other widely embraced on the internet i think position about charlie and the chocolate factory i don't know i think honestly if anyone really deserved to win it was augustus gloop because he's the one who loves it all the rest of them they're selfish in like i don't know like capitalistic ways you know what i mean like Uh uh-huh he's the one who is truly passionate about the chocolate okay all right i see it pilot has like the interest in innovation I mean, maybe she could be like VP of new ideas or something. Yeah. But I feel like the core of the love that needs to be there would come mm-hmm. from Augustus Gloop. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's it's a fair position. Maybe all the kids should have won and it shouldn't be like one person in charge of the whole thing. And it could yeah. be a board of directors, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seize the means of production. That's um. right. <laughs> Daily Double number two is in Frailty. That name is Matt at the $2,000 level. Pick number 15. Javeri finds it. She's at 11,600. Good lead. Devin's at 5,200. Patty's at 6,600. And she bets it all. Yeah. Yeah. Love the gutsy move. Gets the clue. In a Robert Graves novel, this emperor introduces himself with some of his nicknames, like the idiot. And she gets it correct with who is Claudius of I, Claudius. Mm-hmm. So she and jumps out to a big lead. Yes. Very impressive. And then she's also the one who finds Daily Double number three at the $800 level of Summer of Our Discontent. It's at pick number 20. At this point, she's at 27200 with Devin at 5200 and Patty at 6600 And this time, she wagers 3200 And she gets the clue in August 1957. Strom Thurmond filibustered for over 24 hours, railing against this, signed into law the next month. Tough break, Strom Thurmond. It was the Civil Rights Act, and she gets yeah. it correct. I have no sympathy for Strom Thurmond. Nope. Nope. In any not, way, shape, or form. Not a bit. All right. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Javeri is in a lock position at 32,800. Devin's at 6,400. Patty's at 7,000. Numbers don't matter much at this point. Final Jeopardy category is 19th century America. The clue is an 1884 article calls this newly completed structure the highest work of man and disagrees with those who call it a great chimney. And Javeri clearly listened to my fairly recent deep dive before this taped, obviously. Devin wrote, what is the Brooklyn Bridge? That's incorrect. And he wagered 601. Patty wrote, what is the Eiffel Tower High Girls? And it's it's mainly her granddaughters, apparently, but not mm. all. She wagered all 7,000 drops to zero. Javeri got it with what is the Washington Monument? And wagered 8,000, so she moves up above 40,000. Mm-hmm. Just for fun. She just keeps crushing it. Yeah. So Thursday's game, this is quarterfinal game three, and the contestants are Nick Berry, a social studies teacher from Baltimore, Maryland, Kendra Westerhouse, a licensed psychologist from Pocatello, Idaho, and Martha Bath. 
a retired CPA from Seattle, Washington. And the Jeopardy round categories are classical music, what in the wide world of sports, take it back, vegetable stew, the past presently, and the missing letter. They have to name the missing letter from each word that appears. It is conveniently all silent letters, essentially. Yes. Yeah, the $800 level fennig, meaning old coin. Kendra tried what's an N. That is incorrect. I guess she was thinking maybe it was like a fenning, like a shilling. They didn't specify these would all be silent letters. As it turned out, it was a P. Martha got that. It's a P at the beginning. Silent P. Fenig. P-F-E-N-N-I-G. The very first pick of the round was in vegetable stew at the $600 level. The clue is last name of Albert, nicknamed Cubby, who produced many James Bond films as well as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Martha got it. That's Broccoli. Albert R. Broccoli. I don't know if we've talked about Albert R. Broccoli, because that was new to me. Mm-hmm. I forget I, things sometimes. But but usually when you're reminded of something you've known, yeah. you're like, oh, yes, I recall, as as opposed to, oh, this is new information. Yeah, I think I've mentioned before, I have, up until the more recent Daniel Craig's, I've watched every James Bond film, and Albert Broccoli did, you know, most of them, at least all of, like, the earlier ones. And what's getting me here is I think we talked about, so like Ian Fleming wrote the James Bond novels. He also wrote the book Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Mm, yeah. For his son. And apparently Raul Dahl was in on the movie, like the movie adaptation, I think. It, it does give Raul Dahl vibes. Screenplay right. co-written by Raul Dahl and Ken Hughes. Yeah. yeah, so the screenplay was, but it's based on a book by Ian Fleming, who also wrote the James Bond films. Wow, it's just all connected. That's wild. Yeah. Having the last name Broccoli must be wild also. <laughs> yeah. Can only imagine the jokes. Mm-hmm. Triple Stumper at the $1,000 level of classical music. His Seventh Symphony premiered in 1813 at a benefit after a battle, and its second movement is seen as a funeral march. No one even tried. That's Beethoven. Mm-hmm. The second movement of Beethoven Seven is one of the greatest, in my opinion, like movements of, of music ever written. I think we've talked about it before. It's what plays under Colin Firth's speech in The King's Speech. It's very good. Also, if you see the date, this is a little bit deeper, but like there isn't another big name composer that really makes a lot of sense for like Seventh Symphony in 1813. At that point, it was like after Haydn, before Schubert, before Schumann, before Bra, you know, like yeah, because he's Beethoven. like the bridge from like the classical to romantic, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. like, we didn't have any of the big name romantics writing, you know, symphonies quite yet, and we were after Mozart and Haydn and you know those other guys. So yeah, they left the whole classical music category for the end. Didn't they start did on well it. though. Yeah, they did. They did. They did fine. But apparently it was none of their first choice. Mm-hmm. Daily double number one is in Take It Back at the $800 level. Uh, pick number five. Kendra finds it. She's at negative 200. Martha's at 600. Nick is at 1800. And she bets 1,000. It's a clue. In 2008, the Hindu American Foundation launched Take Back, this practice that's much more than the physical postures of asana. And she gets it correct with what is yoga. Makes sense. 
at the end of the Jeopardy round, Martha is at 6,800. Kendra has gotten up to 3,200. Nick's at 4,200. Double Jeopardy categories are on the map. A Woman's Place. Movie titles with numbers in them. Painful Memories. The Writer's Strike. And an H and R block. H in quotation marks, <laughs> R in quotation marks, and boom, gotcha, Ken. They're coming for Ken. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> we're back from the strike and we're coming after you. Uh-huh. So each correct response will begin with either H or R. Mm-hmm. Did Ken acknowledge that I as don't an remember. inside joke? I don't remember. I don't think he did, but I could be wrong. But like, it would have been, been good either yeah. way. Good on Nick in a woman's place for for getting the $1,600 level, which I didn't think was especially challenging. But open for 10 days until the cops came in 1916. The Brownsville Clinic in Brooklyn was the USA's first to offer guidance about this. Nick knew that one. It's birth control or contraception. I guess they probably would have accepted. Good for him. They had some other triple stumpers in the woman's place, though. They didn't didn't True. do great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the $2,000 level Hillary Clinton was the first student ever asked to give the commencement address at this college. Nobody tried it. It was Wellesley. That's where she went for undergrad. Yeah, a bunch of triple stumpers in that category. Yeah. It was a big triple stumper at the $2,000 level of on the map. Big because two people got it incorrect. So this is a, was a lot of money lost. Mm-hmm. Lying between Italy's heel and toe, the Gulf of Toronto. Tar- Toronto? Tar- Toronto? No idea. It's not, it's not Toronto like in Canada. Yeah. Is an inlet of this sea named for a nymph of Greek mythology. Nick guessed what's the Aegean. That's incorrect. Kendra guessed what's the Adriatic. That's also incorrect. It's the Ionian Sea named for Io. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Nick and Kendra both lost 2,000, which means that Martha essentially gained 2,000. The $1,200 level of writer's strike at Jack Kelly's nonfiction book, The Edge of Anarchy, is about the 1894 strike against this man's railroad car company. Kendra mm-hmm. tried who is Vanderbilt. That's incorrect. And then Nick got the rebound with Pullman. We did a deep dive. I did a deep dive a couple of years back about Pullman and the Pullman strike. So, yeah. yeah, if that's not familiar, you can go check it out. Right. Daily Double number two is in that writer's strike category at the $1,600 level. Pick number 20. Nick finds this one. He's at 11,000 with Martha at 9,600 and Kendra at 3,600. He goes big. He wagers 6,000 here. Mm-hmm. And he gets the clue. Ken Kesey's sometimes a great notion concerns a timber strike in Wakanda, not in Africa, but in this state, Kesey's home. And Nick tries what is Washington, but Kesey is in fact from Oregon. Yeah, my dad so. must have known it was Pacific Northwest, but like mm-hmm. not exactly. And Daily Double number three is on the map at the $800 level, pick number 24. And Nick also finds this one, so he has a chance for redemption. He's at 6,600, Martha's at 9,600, Kendra's at 3,600, and he wagers everything again. He gets Mm -hmm. the clue. The UK's second most populous city, it lies in an industrial area near the geographic center of England. And oh, he apparently just does not know like the geography of England, uh, because he guesses what is London. Yeah. That is incorrect. They are looking for Birmingham. Yeah. So in the last 11 clues of the round, he's dropped from a decent lead to zero. To zero. And at the end of the double jeopardy round, Martha's at 9,600. Kendra is at 4,800. That makes this a lock tie. If Kendra doubles up, she will tie with Martha. 
And Nick is at 800. Probably doesn't have a chance here if Martha knows how to wager, but people get sometimes confused by lock ties and other weird wagering scenarios. So I think in Nick's shoes, I would not count myself out completely. The final Jeopardy category is 20th century history. And the clue is after the Vietnam War, Vietnam got bogged down in a campaign against this leader whom it managed to overthrow in 1979. And this was a triple stumper with everyone trying the same incorrect response. So Mm. Nick responded, who is Ho Chi Minh? He wagered a dollar. He drops to $7.99. Kendra also put who is Ho Chi Minh and wagered everything, looking to tie with Martha and hopefully go to a tiebreaker. Or maybe if Martha wagers something and misses, Kendra could win outright. But -hmm. this drops Kendra to zero. And then Martha also responded, who is Ho Chi Minh, made the $0 wager. So she decided she would rather definitely not lose on this and potentially go to a tiebreaker. That's the choice. If you wager something, you can win outright on the final Jeopardy question if you get it right. But you might lose outright. And if you wager zero, then you can win outright or you can go to a tiebreaker, but you're not going to lose on that clue. She chose the $0 wager, which turned out to be savvy here. So she keeps her 9600 and heads to the semifinals. And that brings us to Friday when we have the contestants Rachel Clark, a director of client strategy from Washington, D.C., Aaron Portman, a high school English teacher from Naperville, Illinois, and Brian White, a senior regulatory compliance analyst originally from Santa Maria, California. Jeopardy round categories are America Before 1800, the book title Animal, Let's play a game. British TV. Meet me in St. Louis. And from S to Y. Mm-hmm. Meet me in St. Louis. Sounds wrong. Instead of meet me in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. But it's St. Louis. Just the song is St. Louis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Do people from St. Louis call it St. Louis? Or do I they call it St. Louis? I don't Louis? think so. I think they call it St. Louis. I wouldn't know. I can't I can't say with certainty that I've ever met anybody from St. Louis. Yeah. Or St. Louis. The thousand dollar level of that category is something we have I feel like we've talked about recently, but it may have been like six months ago at this point. Yeah. In sixteen seventy three, these two French explorers passed through the region that became St. Louis. Aaron got it with who is she said Joliet and Marquette. Apparently it's Joliet as Ken pronounced it, but mm. the rest of us can pronounce it the way we do here, which is Joliet and Marquette. Hmm. I mean, it's French, so there's no way of knowing how it's supposed to be pronounced. There's a way of knowing, but okay. So you say, I have have yet to be convinced. The $800 level of the book title animal. Let's toss around Mrs. Frisbee and the blank of Nim. Brian tried, what are the mice? Aaron tried, what are the cats? Rachel didn't try for a response similar to mice but rhymes with cats it's the rats of nim mrs frisbee and the rats of nim great book great great book i don't think i've ever read it but i'm saying that without complete like confidence i i don't recall it but i recall the title Uh Hmm. they're like preternaturally intelligent rats because they've been like they were like lab rats that became smart and escaped and then mrs frisbee is she a mouse is she a rat she's a little she's a little creature of some kind Mm, and the rats the rats help her okay yeah 
Interesting. I'll have to check that out. That's a great book. We've been, we've been going to the library more often lately. Yeah. Now that my older daughter actually reads. Yeah. She actually she wants books, so we're like, great, let's go. Yeah. I think it would be a Maybe good we'll... one for her age. Okay. It's, yeah. Check it out. We got very nerdy in the $200 row. What? Um, nerdy things on Jeopardy. <laughs> on Jeopardy? You, you mean talking about baseball, right? Uh, yes, of course. Let's play a game. Okay, so we're actually going to play D&D. Guess it's time to select the DM, this person. And uh, Rachel got that. That's a dungeon master. And then our other nerd moment was in British TV. Journey to the center of the TARDIS was an episode of this time-traveling British series. That's Doctor Who. I guess everything everything on Jeopardy is kind of nerdy in one way or another. Sure. But, yeah. But those two, those two lay firmly within nerd culture. Yeah. Although I will say, I take issue with that let's play a game clue, because I very much doubt that a group of people gets together saying, we're going to play D&D, now let's pick a DM. You know yeah. there's one guy, or, or girl, there's one person who's like, I want to DM, now I just have to get everybody to align their schedules. Yeah. That's really how it goes. Mm, yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one is in America before 1800. It's pick number 17 at the $600 level. Erin finds it. She's at 3200 with Brian at 1000 and Rachel at 3600 She makes it a true Daily Double and she gets the clue reconstructed in the 1930s. The original governor's palace in this colonial capital was built from 1706 to 1722. And she figures that one out. It's Williamsburg. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Aaron's in the lead with 8600 Rachel's at 5,400, Brian's at 1,800, and the double Jeopardy categories are Asian capital cities, musical theater, agriculture, newer words and phrases, existentialism, and famous forgeries. At the $1,600 level of existentialism, Texas prof Robert Solomon appears in this animated Linklater film to link existentialism to a life of purpose and exuberance. I don't know this film. Brian tried what is being there. The correct response is waking life. And my brain, for some reason, I think maybe animated existentialism produced a film that I have not thought about in well over a decade. Do you remember A Scanner Darkly? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, I have not thought about that. Right. In a very like, long time. I don't, I don't know why that immediately came up for me. I'm like... 100% that's the answer. It was not the answer. Wait, it's also a Richard Linklater movie? It is also a Richard Linklater movie. It is. Hmm. Wow. And, job, and it right? is animated. So clearly you were on the right track. Oh, I'm so pleased with myself now. I don't think that Texas Prof. <laughs> Robert Solomon appears in it, however. <laughs> um, but you got in the, you got, you know, in the periphery. So yeah. that's, that's yeah. more than I got. I was like, I don't even know where to start with this. <laughs> yeah. Most of the musical theater stuff was, well, no, some of it was relatively new. I feel like the $2,000 level maybe shouldn't have been the $2,000 level. This recent show intertwines the stories of Orpheus and Eurydice and that of Persephone and the King of the Underworld. That's Hades Town. Brian yeah. got that. That one, the Tony, like. Yeah, I, I, I know Hades Town. Yeah. I did if, not know Shucked. Yeah, Shucked, I think is closing or just closed, which I know because we decided that would be the best one to see 
when we next go see a Broadway show and then we tried to get tickets to it and couldn't. And we were like, what's going on? And it's because it was about to close. People know Cabaret. And then like the $400 level wasn't really a musical theater question. In 2023, Marty McFly and Doc Brown landed on Broadway and the musical based on this film. That's a film question. That's Back to the Future. For sure. Yeah. But I don't know what Hadestown was doing at the $2,000 level. I agree. Yeah. And the last pick of the round was the $400 of newer words and phrases. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it makes sense that this directional term would refer to a right-handed person. Aaron got it with what seemed to be a guess as Northpaw. I've never heard that. I, I guess somebody has used it. I remember learning that Southpaw came from baseball, which I don't know if that's genuine or if it's just kind of conventional wisdom. Yeah. So the idea was the orientation of a baseball diamond. If if the pitcher is facing home and, you know, home is is to the west, like it's oriented so that the, the batter doesn't have the sun in their eyes or whatever. OK, then their left hand would be south. It made me think of that. Like, remember, like, oh, I remember hearing that. And I have no idea if it's true or not. But yeah. that's apparently huh. the origin. So just want to yeah. throw it out there for trivia purposes. All right. Daily Double Number Two is back in the musical theater category at the $1,200 level. Pick number nine. Rachel finds it. She's at 11400 Brian's at 3400 And Aaron is also at 11400 And man, I wanted her to bet it all. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, you're tied. Bet it all. She bet like <laughs> 10% or thereabouts. She bet 1400 and got the clue. Of course, it features the title song that says, Come and meet those dancing feet on the avenue I'm taking you to. And Rachel doesn't know. She goes with avenue and guesses what is avenue Q. Uh, this is 42nd Street. A little bit different. Yeah. So so good call <laughs> not betting at all, I guess. Yeah. Avenue Q would have rhymed. But yeah. And Daily Double number three is at the $1,200 level of famous forgeries. And Aaron finds this one at pick 24. She's at 15,800 with Brian at 9,400 and Rachel at 9,200. Aaron wagers 5,000. So even if she misses, she'll still be in the lead. And she gets the clue. Clifford Irving gambled wrongly that this reclusive billionaire wouldn't step forward to debunk a forged 1971 autobiography. And she guesses who is Salinger, but it's Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes. Yeah, so she also drops down. And then going into final, Brian manages to take the lead. He's at 12,200. Aaron is at 11,200. And Rachel's at 10,000. It's a very close game. The final Jeopardy category is American Artists. And the clue is in the 1920s, he used wire, string, and other materials to fabricate, quote, models in motion for a miniature circus scene. Rachel got it correct with who is Calder, Alexander Calder. We have talked about him. And if you have art that moves, it's got to be Calder on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. She wagered 1,201 to go a dollar above Aaron. Aaron also got who is Calder and she bet 9,000 to go up, essentially covering Rachel's all in. So she's up to 20,200. And Brian wrote, who is John's it's incorrect also wrote I Heart Emma, and he wagered 10300 a cover bet, so he drops down, and that means that Aaron gets to move on. And we get to move on to the point in the episode where we talk about our Patreon. 
This is the favorite part for me because it's when I ask for money and gosh, I just love doing that. Mm. So you can go to patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can find some exclusive content. Mostly it tends to be quiz questions. So if you have, I don't know, a trivia night coming up and you want to plunder some quiz questions without writing your own, feel free to use ours, I guess, if you're a patron. (laughs) So there's that. You can go there and help us financially cover the costs of this podcast, which aren't huge, but enough that it's, you know, it's significant if we're just shelling it out of our own pocket. So we very much appreciate those of you who are doing it already, and we would love to have more of you over there. Uh, it's one more time, patreon.com slash potentpotables. And we, of course, also want to humble ourselves and remember that there are more important things in the world And we have listed some of those causes that we feel are important and organizations that we think are doing good in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So, Emily. Yes, Kyle. Man, there were a lot of good options this week. There were. What are we talking about? Are we talking about Pol Pot? Yes, we are talking about Pol Pot. Ha <laughs> got it in one. Got it in one. I mean, it was a missed Final Jeopardy that tends to be low-hanging fruit, you know. But, yeah. but yes, there was another Triple Stumper Final Jeopardy. Yeah, but I've it was got not gonna... Othello mm-hmm. next on my guest list. Wasn't going to talk about Othello, especially when Pol Pot is right here. So yeah, that's the Thursday Final Jeopardy. Again, the clue was after the Vietnam War. Vietnam got bogged down in a campaign against this leader, whom it managed to overthrow in 1979. Everyone guessed Ho Chi Minh. But that was Pol Pot in Cambodia. So Americans tend not to know much about Cambodia or like recent history of Cambodia, as perhaps evidenced by the fact that three Jeopardy contestants didn't know or at least didn't know that this was talking about Pol Pot. And I think that it would be good for us to know, especially because the United States was actually a little involved shockingly, I know. I, I am we, astounded. We yeah, were involved in rarely, bad things in other rarely countries. Does I know we, we tend to stay yeah. steer clear yeah. of that, but in this particular case, yes. So yeah, I'm going to yeah. talk a little bit about Pol Pot and about the Cambodian civil war. And like, it's, it's hard because obviously Pol Pot was like a person and has a whole biography. I don't necessarily want to talk about his biography very much because I want to talk more about the, his like political influence and the events during the movement of the Khmer Rouge and the Cambodian civil war. So just kind of give a bunch of information about that. Because again, a lot of Americans don't know, right? We we understand yeah. that Vietnam was a big conflict that we were involved in. And Cambodia is just kind of like, oh, yeah, it's that little uh, country in them right next to it. So anyway, here we go. Pol Pot. He was born with the name Saloth Sar on May 19th, 1925. He died on April 15th, 1998. He assumed the name Pol Pot in the 1970s which I will get to specifically as kind of a way to obscure his identity. He was very much, and I'll talk more about his personality later, but he very much loved the idea of being the man in the shadows or like pretending to be just a a nameless face in the crowd while pulling the strings. And so he, he had more than one pseudonym that he used. And so that was like part of that, that kind of like ideal for him. He was a Cambodian revolutionary dictator and politician. He was the prime minister of democratic Kampuchea between 1976 and 1979, which was the like official name of Cambodia during that time. He was a leader of Cambodia's communist movement, which was the Khmer Rouge 
from 1963 to 1997, and he served as the general secretary to the Communist Party of Kampuchea from 1963 to 1981. He was born to a prosperous farmer family in French Cambodia, what we what we call Indochina or Southeast Asia now, because it's not Chinese, was mostly colonized by France, Vietnam, Cambodia. Thailand was not, but other parts of the Southeast Asia peninsula were colonized by France, which led to, of course, a lot of problems and a lot of conflict. And so much of the internal strife kind of grows out of the colonialism. But after Cambodia gained independence from France, it quickly turned into civil war between varying factions. So I'm going to quickly, like I said, go through his biography. His family was of mixed Chinese and ethnic Khmer heritage, but he did not speak Chinese and lived as though they were fully Khmer. And so he was very much interested and proud of the like Khmer heritage and Khmer identity. Cambodia was a monarchy, but that monarchy was still under the rule of the French colonial regime. And so he was like growing up in this atmosphere. He was afforded a good education, which most Cambodians were not. Like I said, he came from a fairly well-off family and he had access to education. He learned to play the violin, took part in school plays, and eventually he was able to pass enough tests and, and like show enough aptitude that he was selected to go and study in Paris. So he and 21 other selected students sailed from Saigon, made a bunch of stops along the way and ended up in Paris. In January 1950, he enrolled at the École Française de Radio-Electricité. He studied radio electronics. He didn't do great in school. He got good marks in classes, but failed his end-of-year exams the first year. He was allowed to retake them and narrowly passed, so he was able to continue his studies into his second year. He never really embraced French culture. He did not care to learn the French language all that well which probably led to difficulties in his studies. You know, He did come to appreciate French literature and French authors like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He also traveled to Yugoslavia with a group of counterparts during the summer and helped build a motorway in Zagreb. It was also during his time in Paris that he joined the Cercle Marxiste. Him and a couple other Cambodians joined the Marxist Circle, which was a not necessarily militant, but rather active communist group of of young people he joined a particular cell and through that organization he became more involved in the overall communist party and more interested in communism and you know its activities throughout the world he didn't really understand karl marx's texts but he was familiar with the writings of stalin he also read mao's works as well and you know became fairly well versed in in the like emerging ideals of communism. There was, meanwhile, internal strife in Cambodia with the King Sihanouk, who had been placed in power by the French colonial authorities. That internal strife resulted in Sihanouk dismissing the government and declaring himself prime minister. That, of course, made Tsar, who became Pol Pot, made him upset, and he penned an article called Monarchy or Democracy, which kind of started him off as like a, a thinker that people recognized in like Cambodian and Asian communism. 
In December of 1952, he returned to Cambodia without a degree. Part of this was because the circle had decided that someone should go to Cambodia to assess the situation and determine which rebel group they should support, because with Sihanouk's dismissing the government, uh, a number of anti-monarchist forces began to like coalesce. Also, he had failed his second year exams and mm-hmm. lost his scholarship. So he had a good reason to go, but he also volunteered and was like, I'll go back to Cambodia and check out what's going on. So in 1953 and 1954, he spent several months kind of moving between different rebel groups. He you know, was able to move around in cities and like get a sense of, of how people were feeling. Sihanouk had disbanded the Democratic-controlled National Assembly and began ruling by decree. Their civilian massacres and atrocities were carried out by kind of like all sides in this. So it you know, wasn't just Sihanouk being a bad guy, but everyone was doing some bad things. Pol Pot traveled around. He, he like I said, he, he met with various groups. And the one that he decided on was the Khmer Viet Minh which was a mixed Vietnamese and Cambodia guerrilla subgroup of the North Vietnamese-based Viet Minh. He went and met with them. He spoke with their leaders and the circle members in Paris took his recommendation and decided to put their support behind the Khmer Viet Minh. As he spent more time there, he found that the Khmer recruits were largely given menial tasks and the Vietnamese guerrillas were much more in charge, which didn't sit well with him. In the meantime, the King Sahanouk desired independence from French rule, but France initially refused that, at which point Khmer troops deserted the French army in large numbers. And seeing the tide turn like that, the French government relented and officially gave up control of Cambodia, at which point King Sahanouk declared Cambodia's independence. However, that didn't resolve the conflict. The conflict actually intensified and France decided to back Sahanouk against the rebels. So now... It was a pure civil war with European backing of one side. At a certain point in 1954, uh, it was agreed that the North Vietnamese would withdraw their Viet Minh forces from Cambodia, but the Cambodians decided to stay. The Khmer Rouge movement then began to pick up from 1950 into the 1960s. Tsar Pol Pot and other revolutionaries decided to pursue their aims through electoral means. It did not work the subsequent elections, there was a lot of electoral fraud and intimidation, and they were just not valid elections. In 1959, the Marxist-Leninist party of the Kampuchean Labor Party was established. King Sihanouk spoke out against the Cambodian Khmer communists. He also warned of their totalitarian character and suppression of personal liberty. However, he also cracked down on a number of Cambodia socialists so it was like he didn't have a lot to stand on in regards of you know to personal liberty and all of that in the 1960s it became clear that they needed to plot rebellion at least to them so from 62 to 68 the Khmer Rouge which is the later name of the Kampuchean Labor Party became more focused on an armed insurrection they were allied with the Viet Cong because of course the Viet Cong were also a, a communist movement to liberate as they saw vietnam from european influence he spent a good amount of time in beijing dealing with the leadership of the chinese communist party and it was with their partnership that he got a lot of the ideas for the structure of the communist party of Kampuchea. 
and the kinds of, of policies that they would put in place if they managed to gain power. In January 1968, the war was launched with an attack on the Bay Damran, south of the city of Batambang. Further attacks targeted police and soldiers and seized weaponry, and the government responded with scorched earth policies, aerially bombarding areas where rebels were active. But of course, as we always see, that kind of scorched earth only ends up aiding the insurgents' cause because all of the people who are caught in the middle are the ones who are harmed, and they say, well, if our government is going to bomb us for no reason, we should probably fight them and stop them. So as the uprising spread, over 100,000 villagers joined them. They continually moved their base closer and closer to Phnom Penh in order to, you know, extend their influence. In 1970, Sar had gone to Beijing for a meeting with leadership and also to get his wife some medical care. While he was gone, a man named Lon Nol deposed Sahanuk while Sahanuk was also out of the country. Lon Nol was a military leader and a right-wing pro-U.S. leader, and he established kind of a, a military, not junta, but uh, a state. He deposed Sihanouk and established himself as the leader of Cambodia. So Sihanouk flew to Beijing and established his own government in exile. The leadership of China encouraged him to unite with the communists in order to gain support, and so he did. So for a while, the deposed king... And the Khmer Rouge, at this time, they managed to undergo a huge expansion in size because, you know, those traditionalists who supported the king and the communists who supported the Khmer Rouge came together. So later in 1970, the Khmer Rouge moved back in and began a war against Lan Nol. The majority of fighting against Lan Nol was actually carried out by the Vietnamese or Cambodians under Vietnamese control. So, you know, this is 1970. The Vietnam War is still going on, but the Viet Cong is also active in Cambodia with Vietnamese troops and Cambodian troops. In 1972, Pol Pot embarked on his first tour of Marxist-controlled areas across Cambodia. He called these areas liberated zones. Uh, corruption was stamped out, gambling was banned, and alcohol and extramarital affairs were discouraged. Before, the Khmer Rouge had generally sought to cultivate good relations with the inhabitants, organizing local elections and assemblies. But at this point, the Khmer Rouge took on an attitude of very strict agrarianism and egalitarianism. So they believed that the image of the poor peasantry was worthy of emulation, and they began to not just encourage people, but force people to do that. From 1973 to 1975, they continued their campaign. In 1973, they launched their first major assault on Phnom Penh, but were forced back. In 1974, Lon Nol's government had lost a great deal of support, both domestically and internationally. And in 1975, the troops de defending Phnom Penh began to discuss surrender, eventually doing so on April 17th. Khmer Rouge soldiers then executed between 700 and 800 senior government, military, and police figures. It was not great. The Khmer Rouge had long viewed Phnom Penh's population with mistrust, particularly because as the city's numbers had been swelled by peasant refugees who had fled from the Khmer Rouge's advance and were considered to be traitors. And also, they viewed urbanism or urbanization or urban living as like a product of capitalism. And so in order to fully embrace their communist ideals, they forced collectivism upon the population. Mm. It meant that people were moved out of cities. 
they were put onto collective farms to work and personal property was banned like currency was gotten rid of it was incredibly extreme and in fact in many cases children were taken from families to educate and put to work where they felt that they were appropriate it was not good so a lot of the the rural farmers did not want to be a part of it and a lot of the city folk did not want to be a part of it yeah so when they took Phnom Penh, they ordered an evacuation of the city saying that a U.S. bombing raid was forthcoming and that the population would be allowed to return after three days. That was not true. They forced them out of the city and then put them out, you know, working on the fields. And this is where we get the Khmer Rouge killing fields, if you've heard of the killing fields mm-hmm. of Cambodia. This is that idea. Phnom Penh was, was evacuated. They, like I said, established the collectivist ideal. They wanted to establish Cambodia as a self-sufficient state. They regarded foreign assistance as pernicious, except from China. China was their you know, strong ally. Now, moving forward, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, they established a supposedly you know, democratic government, but the Khmer Rouge was in charge. Pol Pot was supposedly just one of the leaders in 1976. They promulgated a new constitution declaring the country to be renamed Democratic Kampuchea and supposedly was governed by a three-person presidium with Pol Pot as one of the leaders. They encouraged King Sahanuk to be a different leader, but he instead refused and was just sort of under house arrest, but like well taken care of. During this time, the Cambodian population were officially known as Kampuchean rather than Khmer because they wanted to avoid the ethnic specificity avoided with the term Khmer. And the Khmer language was relabeled as Kampuchean. So once they came into power, they started to deviate from the Marxist ideals, which began to alienate them with other Marxist movements in Asia and around the world. In particular, their strong allyship with China put them at odds with Vietnam, who was very strongly associated with the Soviet Union. And so that becomes an international conflict where the United States actually starts to kind of support Cambodia and Pol Pot a little bit because they viewed it as a balance to the Russian influence in Vietnam. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And so like during the Vietnam War, bombing raids happened in Cambodia against the Viet Cong or those who were opposed to Pol Pot's government. It gets real messy. Yeah. going to quickly go through other stuff about their rule. The Khmer Rouge classified people based on religious and ethnic backgrounds. There was a state policy of atheism. Buddhist monks were viewed as social parasites and designated a special class. Monks were sent to manual labor in rural cooperatives. However, many historical monuments were left undamaged by the Khmer Rouge. For instance, Angkor Wat and places like that. There were several isolated revolts against Pol Pot's government in a few places in the mid-70s, but they cracked down quickly with a number of purges and executions. Different historians estimate the number of deaths differently who died as a result of Khmer Rouge policy, but the general idea right now is between 21% and 24% of Cambodia's 1975 population were killed by Khmer Rouge policies. Either specific executions or through forced labor or forced relocation, or they had the attitude of self-reliance and that came to medicine as well. 
So the attitude mm. was, if you get sick, you need to figure it out. If yeah. you get hurt, you need to figure it out, which is Oof. bonkers. In, yeah. This is 1975. Like, this is not that long ago. Yeah. So, yeah, different historians have different, like, methods and different ways of kind of estimating. But demographer Patrick Huveline, who is one of the experts on this, estimated between 1.17 million and 3.42 million Cambodians died unnatural deaths between 1970 and 1979. So, yeah. An estimated 300,000 Cambodians starved to death between 1979 and 1980 largely as a result of after effects of Khmer Rouge policies, because with this forced relocation and collectivism, a massive famine hit Cambodia. Anyway, Democratic Kampuchea fell later on in 1979. The Jeopardy clue talks about how he was deposed at that point, and the Khmer Rouge were forced out. There were a number of rebellions, which kind of like set this up. Eastern zone troops began rebelling against the Khmer Rouge government with help of the Viet Cong. His response was to send more troops there and slaughter the inhabitants of any villages that were believed to be harboring any rebel forces. So of course, Mm. that always turns out well. Yep. Over the next year or two, the Vietnamese army launched a full-scale invasion. This was on Christmas Day 1978 that they actually launched the invasion and they began making headways into Cambodia. China was open to supporting them with supplies, but not open to devoting troops for fear of angering the Soviet Union. The Vietnamese continued to push, and eventually Pol Pot and his government were forced to move away from Phnom Penh. 1979, they were able to push back a little bit, but in 1981, Pol Pot and Nguyen Chia, his ally, decided to dissolve the Communist Party of Kampuchea and try to, like gain more international favor to get more allyship. In 1985, he resigned as commander-in-chief of the Khmer Rouge forces, but he still continued to wield significant influence. It wasn't until 1988 that his anti-Vietnamese factions entered negotiation with the Phnom Penh government because, of course, the Vietnamese movement had been successful. Pol Pot deemed this too soon because he feared that the Khmer Rouge had not gained sufficient popular support to make significant gains in any post-war election, but he didn't get any say in it. The fall of the Berlin Wall and end of the Cold War had repercussions for Cambodia because with the Soviet Union no longer a threat, the U.S. no longer cared about having any kind of power to balance out Russian influence in Vietnam. So they're like, cool, we actually don't support Pol Pot's government anymore, or the we don't support the anti-Vietnamese movement in Cambodia anymore. And so that led to a ceasefire, that was supposed to be overseen by the United Nations. Of course, that rarely, rarely works. But eventually he moved north into the small area that was still controlled by Khmer Rouge. And in 1997, he ordered an assassination of a fellow Khmer Rouge leader. It was successful. And so another leader, Tom Mok, was concerned that Pol Pot could turn on him too, rallied troops, and had him captured. He gave a few interviews before his death, but he was placed under house arrest. And in 1998, he died of a heart attack, supposedly, in his sleep. The journalist who was interviewing him claimed that Pol Pot killed himself when he became aware of Tamok's plan to hand him over to the United States Mm. and claimed that he had ingested a combination of Valium and chloroquine. Basically, after that, in 1999, Tamok was also captured by Cambodian authorities. And at that point, the Khmer Rouge effectively 
ceased to exist. So that's that's Pol Pot. That's kind of his whole thing with the Cambodian Civil War. Real quick, his ideology began as Marxist and moved through communist, but eventually it just became he was a totalitarian. He had a lot of deviations from Marxism and Leninism. He was really a fascist more than anything mm-hmm. and kind of used these other ways of getting there. A little bit of cultic activity apparently happens around his grave from time to time. There was actually a, an attempt to create a cult of personality around Pol Pot at the beginning of the conflict that forced the Khmer Rouge out. You know, they wanted to do like a, you know, a North Korea or China thing where there's a portrait of Pol Pot in every dining hall and busts in every school and like whatever. It didn't end up getting implemented, but they had those things starting to be produced. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. That's Pol Pot. That's more about the Cambodian Civil War. Thank you. I knew not nearly enough about this. So yeah, this is, it's important. And I'm glad to know some more. Yeah. And of course, like that was not exhaustive. There is so much to know about it. If you're interested, there are some very well written books and films made about it. And you can certainly get into it. They actually passed a law, I think in 2013, similar to European laws about the Holocaust saying like, you cannot deny that the Khmer Rouge committed atrocities and, and that essentially a genocide took place here. Like, yeah, it is illegal to deny this. So, mm. all right. Anyway, let's lighten it up. You ready for a quiz? Yes. Let's this, do a quiz. This quiz is about poles and pots. So here we Yay. go. <laughs> all right. Question number one, I'm a fan of poker and have lost plenty of money in my enjoyment of the game. The amount of money that can be won in any given hand of poker is called the pot. To make sure that there is always something in the pot to play for, some money is placed in before cards are dealt. There are two primary types of these forced bets. One, common in stud or draw poker, is from the Latin for before, not your mom's sister, and the other, seen in Texas and Omaha Hold'em, simply refers to the fact that you put in money without seeing your cards. Give me each for five points apiece. I think that is ante and a blind. Those are antes and blinds. Yay. Very nice. And some like Hold'em games might also have an ante and a blind. Yeah. But whatever. It's just to get money in the pot so you actually play for something. Yeah. All right. Nice job. You are at 20 points. Question two. The Polish sausage is one of the five racing sausages who compete during the sixth inning of Major League Baseball games of what team? Johnsonville is now the provider of sausages for the ballpark, which do well to get fans through those cold Wisconsin nights, even though they play in a dome. Oh, my God. Everyone knows that a brat goes well with a beer. Oh, it's the brewers, right? You need a city, don't you? No, I'll take the Brewers. So it is the Milwaukee Brewers. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say Milwaukee. Yeah. Okay, cool. Nice. Yes. I lost my Major League Baseball teams for a minute there. I was like, (laughs) the Packers. No. (laughs) The Milwaukee Beers. (laughs) It's a little basketball joke for you. Yeah. Apparently, I found out today, the sausages who run the race are just family members and friends of the staff who work for the team or the stadium. So like... It can be anybody. It could be like, you know, somebody's sister or someone's cousin or like a friend. Just come in and get to run a race in the sausage outfit. Okay. There was one time, I don't remember specifically, but a player for the Pittsburgh Pirates hit one of the sausages in the head with a bat. 
they missed the person inside. They just knocked them over. Luckily, the person was fine, but he was arrested. Okay. <laughs> the, the player was arrested and charged. Anyway, yeah, you're at 30 points. Question three. Hot pot is a dish whereby a heat source placed on the dining table keeps a pot of soup stock simmering, and a variety of Chinese foodstuffs and ingredients are served beside the pot for diners to put into the hot stock. It is also apparently known by a term that elicits Fulton's folly, though I can't imagine a table of soup chugging down the Mississippi or the Hudson. What is that term? Hmm. I don't know the other term. It's just called hot pot, so I'm trying to... Yeah, I learned today that this is apparently a term that is sometimes used for hot pot. Yeah. Huh. Fulton's folly. I'm thinking Fulton and I think Steamboat, but like, that doesn't seem right somehow. Steam something? Steam. I guess I'm going to go with Steamboat, though I don't love it. Yeah. It is Steamboat. What? No, it's it is, not. It is Steamboat. Yes. Steamboat is often used in Southeast Asian countries like Malaysia and Singapore, often referring huh. to the same concept as hot pot. Apparently, it can mean some like variations. So like Steamboat might not necessarily be exactly the same as hot pot, but it's like sometimes used interchangeably, sometimes a little bit different. But mm-hmm. yeah, Steamboat. Never heard it, but I was like, well, now I can ask a question about Steamboat. Nice. All right. All right, you're at 40 points. Question four. A particular company in the U.S. has become somewhat synonymous with political surveys, even though it is just one of over 20 organizations that operate for that purpose. It is named for what founder who established it in 1939 in Princeton, New Jersey? I know that I know this name, but right now all I'm getting is Nielsen, which is incorrect. Gallup. It's Gallup. It is Gallup indeed, as in the Gallup poll. Uh, Yeah, apparently in my research, I discovered that Nate Silver believes that the Gallup poll is the least accurate of them. And of course, we can all trust Nate Silver. Anyway, (laughs) you got that question correct, and we can all agree on that. So you're at 50 points. Going to question five. Although Colorado has the distinction of being the first state in the union to legalize recreational marijuana, which state first allowed medicinal use of the drug back in 1996? The Compassionate Use Act, as it was called, was supported by the majority of voters, but opposed by many elected officials, including three former presidents, such as Ronald Reagan. I think it was California. It was indeed California. Well done. Yeah, had to get a pot clue in here, you know, because yeah. I'm from Colorado. <laughs> Man, I tell you what. Before 2014, if you say you're from Colorado, it's like, oh, do you ski? Do you snowboard? And after 2014, it's like, oh, you smoke weed? Yeah. It's like, cool. (laughs) That's what we do, I guess. All right. You have 60 points and you are going into the final. And the category is sort of children's literature. I had better wager all of them. I think you better. Yeah. You got this one shot to go for maximum damage. All right. Here we go. I am a pole and so can you is a children's book published in 2012. It tells the story of a pole finding its purpose as an example to inspire the young. Earlier books by the same author include I am America and so can you and America again, rebecoming the greatness we never weren't. (laughs) 
<laughs> who is that author? A comedian turned fake news reporter turned spoof pundit turned late night host. <laughs> it's Stephen Colbert. It is Stephen Colbert. Uh, becoming the greatness we never were. <laughs> it's such a great subtitle. <laughs> It's so good. Yeah, I Am a Pole and So Can You is actually pretty good. And if you've never seen it, the blurb, you know, the promotional quote that I have on it is from Maurice Sendak saying the sad thing. The sad thing is I actually like it. (laughs) If you weren't watching the Colbert Report when he wrote this book, he like met with Maurice Sendak to get advice on how to write a children's book. And it's it's just very good. Anyway, you know what else is very good? 120 points. That is very good. That is very good. Well, you wrote a very good quiz, so good job. Thanks. By a very good quiz, I mean a quiz I did well on. No, it was was a great quiz. Well, Uh, that's the the metric, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you as always, Kyle. And thank you, listeners. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who like Jeopardy, tell them about us. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with more Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. 